fast forward a bit to the present and look at the political project around Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party um, and look at that alongside uh, the project around Bernie Sanders and what these two tell us about left strategy today. Uh, and we're very lucky to be joined by Megan Day, author of Bigger Than Bernie from the USA. Uh, hi, Megan. Um, in the final session, uh, two weeks from now, we're going to bring things right up to the very present moment and also uh, talk about the coronavirus crisis with Leo, Sam, uh, Gindin, and Christine Berry. Um, as you probably know, this series is hosted by the World Transformed and Verso Books. Um, we will be running these calls every other Thursday night at 8 p.m. with the last one in two weeks. So remember to keep this time free and tune in. And I think we currently have over 120 people um, on the call, which is really amazing. And people have been also uh, watching these after the fact. So thanks everyone for joining us now and later. My name is Michal. And I'm Kyla. Um, okay, so in the last few months, we've seen the entirety of the left in the UK and the US throw all of its energies into electoral campaigns to elect socialist candidates. So Corbyn as head of the Labour government in the UK and Sanders to the Democratic nomination, both of which were ultimately defeated. Um, since then, we've had endless post-mortems about what went wrong, whether it was Brexit, the Red Wall, identity politi politics, battles with the right wing of the Labour Party, the Democratic establishment. Um, so in this session, we're not going to directly address these issues. We're going to look a little bit deeper at more generally what the Corbyn and Sanders campaigns can tell us about the role of electoral politics in building the left and working class movements. Uh, so what is what kind of left strategy are we adopting when we take on electoral campaigns? Um, and as we mentioned at the outset, we're really lucky to be joined by Megan Day. Uh, in this conversation, Megan is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, uh, the author with Micah Utrecht of Bigger Than Bernie from Verso Books, and an activist with the Los Angeles chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA. Um, so we're very excited to have her join us from across an ocean and a continent. Uh, good morning. Uh, Leo Panich, um, who's been on this series from the beginning, is Emeritus Professor of Political Science at York University uh, and the author of, I have a list of lo a long list of books here, we'll just say numerous books. Um, we're going to go uh, and do the same thing as we did last time. Uh, we're going to run this webinar as a long Q&A uh, session, so we're going to spend about the first 30 minutes on our initial questions with uh, Leo and Megan, and then after that, once again, uh, we really hope you'll do the work for us, make this a collective project. So when questions come up for you, um, anytime as the speakers are speaking now, before they've even said a word, uh, please post them in the chat. We'll be watching the questions as they arrive and we'll try our best to include and work them into discussion um, as much as we can. Um, and we'll get started right away. And actually I'm gonna ask the first question. I have a question um, that's for both uh, Megan and, and Leo. Um, and in a way, it comes out of our last session, uh, which, you know, we ended with the triumph of Blairism in the UK. Um, in the US, in many ways, was mirrored by, you know, the DLC, the Atari Democrats, uh, sort of triumphing Clinton, Clintonism taking over the Democratic Party. Um, and if you talked to most people on the left, I think even just, you know, five years ago, maybe, uh, you would probably have heard that electoral politics was a dead end. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party as the graveyard of movements, Corbyn and the Socialist Campaign Group, uh, and their toehold in the Labour Party as a sort of lost cause, and so on and so on. Um, I think the last five years have dramatically shifted things in the UK and the US um, in this respect, uh, with electoral campaigns becoming a, if not the central left organizing vehicle. 
Um, so what we wanted to start with is basically what do the rise of the Sanders and Corbyn political projects tell us about this old thorny tension between electoral and non-electoral politics? Um, and what, if anything, is changed by the fact that both these projects, um, as Kyla said in the outset, have ultimately failed in their stated goal um, of winning an election or, uh, in Sanders' case, a nomination. Uh, why don't we start with uh, Leo and then go to Megan. Uh, thanks, Mikhail. Glad to be back here again. Uh, well, I, I think that the question you're posing really is a way to restate um, what the central theme of Colin Lee's and my book is, that this is part of the long historical process of searching for socialism. Um, although there was a clear distinction between uh, the moment between the anti-globalization movement, Seattle 1999, and uh, Corbyn in 2015 and Sanders in 2016. Um, one shouldn't polarize that too much, this difference between protest and politics. What was the case was that once there was no socialist alternative at, in the party political arena, uh, with Blairism, with the triumph of uh, Clintonism, with the demise of the communist parties. Um, it was very much the case that those socialists who remain in the electoral arena were mainly oriented to supporting the protests. This is what made Corbyn distinctive as a politician that he wasn't attuned to spending his time in Westminster, that he was out there in every struggle in the streets. And when the struggle in the streets did lead to some avenues for pressure on the state, which wasn't always the case, but when it did, it would be he or John McDonnell, other people in the campaign group who would rent rooms in parliament where people would come and make their representation. Uh, and I think either Corbin McDonald said at one point that they felt that their main task was to try to get spaces in Parliament for movement activists to come in and make a case inside the state. What happened rather suddenly, and it was a reflection of the spontaneity of the movements, I think, was that uh, uh, with the emergence of uh, Corbyn and Sanders as uh, campaigning as socialists inside those parties. The frustrations that were fed by protesters in terms of not bringing about change and the recognition on the part of people in protest movements that people were running for positions who were supporters of those movements led to them spontaneously uh, uh, I think, flocking into uh, the party political arena. Uh, in, in a sense, the same thing happened with Syriza. Uh, you know, Syriza made its distinctive move in 2008 by being the party which supported the student strikes in Greece that year. Uh, this was seen as a heinous crime on the part even of the Communist Party who treated the student protests as the Jean Provocateur 
uh, from the security state. By, they showed themselves as distinctive by coming out in support of the movements. And then suddenly, out of the blue, uh, Syriza was a party with less than 10% of the vote, but when in the run-up to the 2012 election, uh, Tsipras said in a television debate, we'll form a coalition with anyone to get into the state and stop the bleeding. I think the frustration of people in Syntagma Square with not being able to actually change the politics of austerity, led them spontaneously to flow behind Syriza in the 2012 election. And that changed the whole calculation. What it suddenly meant, and this was the case with Labour and with the Democrats by 2015, 2016, was that there was a socialist anti-capitalist alternative electorally. And soon as there was that, it led the protesters to join the electoral arena. It was the absence of that, I think, that, that uh, was present before. Now, I'll just end with this. They've been defeated, if you like, in the expectation that socialists would form a government. Both the Corbyn and the Sanders movements have been defeated in that respect. But perhaps that should not have been the main objective. Uh, the main objective uh, should have been to create a socialist presence again in the political arena, broadly defined. And insofar as these developments help to define the movements explicitly as socialist, to bring together again protest and politics, rather than to have them divorced, as you said, people saying politics is a dead end, right? Or people saying movements don't go anywhere. The key thing is to create the kind of politics where they feed off each other. And the whole point of getting elected is to continue to be organizers of campaigns, continue to mobilize people. As, as Megan says in her marvelous book that you uh, mentioned, uh, uh, Sanders called himself at one point the organizer in chief. Uh, Corbyn in 2017, right after the election, went to the Labour Party conference said, and said, the crucial thing is for us not to get stuck in Westminster, but to be out there where real politics is across the country in the streets. He lost that perspective and dynamic in the face of the uh, uh, Brexit crisis. But their orientation reflected a new kind of politics. And, and I think that's changed or should have changed both the movements and, and the parties. Thank, thanks, Leo. Um, and I was actually just going to use that very same uh, that very same line the line of organizer in chief in asking Megan how that uh, what that tension looks like from her vantage point and from the and from the U.S. Well, that was a, that was a great answer, Leo. And to build off of that a little bit, I think that if we had drawn up, if by, by we I mean socialists, if we had drawn up a blueprint for how it would have gone um, to arrive at the point where we have a, a self identified democratic socialist running for president of the United States, it would have looked quite different from what actually transpired. So um, we would have preferred to 
for example, have an independent mass working class party, we would have preferred for that party to be integrated into the working class and have strong relationships with uh, trade unions, which ideally would have representation in the United States above 10% and not only be strong, but, um, but also you know, militant and left-wing um, socialist, ideally, and integrated again with this hypothetical party. We would have preferred for this uh, party to have strong relationships with the movements in the streets, and we would also have preferred for it to have already elected representatives from those movements uh, all the way, you know, sort of up and down the ballot, culminating in the point when we felt that we had significant power and the ability to um, actually install a left government, right? And that, that would have roots in that sort of pyramid-like structure that I described. That is absolutely not what has transpired in the United States. On the contrary, um, you know, decades of political marginalization uh, yielded sort of the neo neoliberal ascent sort of unimpeded, which itself caused, you know, massive crisis in 2008, which led to a kind of a politically inchoate uh, restlessness, a sort of appetite for transformation that really could have gone in a number of different directions and indeed did go in a number of different political directions after 2008. Um, it went into sort of protest movements on the left, starting with Occupy Wall Street, also manifesting in Black Lives Matter. And on the right, crucially, it also found manifestation in the, the right-wing populist formation, the Tea Party, which itself found electoral expression before the left did. Um, so really what we ended up with was a situation where the people were hungry for change. The right wing was getting its act together in being able to capitalize on that. And luckily, we happen to have in the United States a senator, which is sort of a prerequisite. You have to be a senator or a governor, right, to run for, for president. A senator who um, was around back the last time that we had like an organized left in the United States and managed to stay politically consistent, managed to get himself into a position of sort of general credibility to be able to run for president um, and was able to provide leadership for an electoral expression of this sort of um, like not not automatically, as Leo says, um, electoral kind of energy that was swirling around. And once he did, once he started to run for president, I think it surprised him as much as anybody else that he garnered so much support. It seemed like he had thrown his hat in the ring almost as a protest candidacy because it was uh, just a sort of a deeply embarrassing to, to watch the, um, the election proceed with Hillary Clinton receiving the sort of um, coronation from the Democratic Party establishment without any sort of challenger, right? Um, and uh, once that happened, it, it was like moths to a flame. You started to see people who would have been in the kind of left party that I was just discussing come out of the woodwork to support the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. And in a way, the 2016 campaign almost functioned like an ad hoc proto party for the left. It gave us the opportunity to meet each other, to build institutions, to develop skills, to hammer out policy ideas, to distinguish ourselves from liberals, to build culture, to build cadre, to do political education, all the kinds of things that you want a mass party to be doing were suddenly actually happening through, on a, on a, not, on a, not on a huge scale, but for the first time in a long time through the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. 
once it was over, you know, nobody was surprised that he didn't win in 2016. We were surprised that he got so far. Um, and then we looked around and suddenly we had a something resembling an organized left in the United States, right? Um, and this allowed us in the intervening years to, especially through organs like the Democratic Socialists of America, engage in non-electoral and electoral politics at the same time um, throughout, you know, all throughout the intervening years. Um, and we built up, you know, we built up our organiza organizational infrastructure. We did a lot of political education. We sort of developed cadre. And then we went into 2020 with a deeper bench than we had before. And so, of course, you know, Bernie Sanders didn't win. Um, I, for one, am not terribly surprised that he didn't win. If I had to bet, I would have said that he wouldn't have won, right? Precisely because we um, were up against a highly organized opposition without much organization of our own, with nas nascent organization of our own. Um, but there are, you know, there are some people I think who want to look at Bernie Sanders's loss, as I'm sure there are in the UK with Corbyn and say, aha, the, the experiment in turning from protest to politics has failed. Electoralism is a dead end. We have to go back to where we were before. On the contrary, no. I mean, I think that it's quite obvious that while Bernie Sanders lost, the five-year-long Bernie Sanders experiment did not fail. It actually led to a revitalized and re renewed American or American left, and specifically an institutional American left. Uh, and furthermore, I should say one other thing, which is even for those of us who are not organized on the left, I mean, I am, but for those who aren't, um, the, the Bernie Sanders, I should say, like it's sort of like one campaign. It's like a five-year-long campaign for the presidency in a way, or a sort of five-year-long experiment, um, has left an indelible impression on the American consciousness. So I would say has left Americans in general with uh, a, a greater sort of imagination for alternatives to capitalism, even people who don't self-identify as socialists, even people who don't tend to, you know, sit around thinking about these things at all, there is just um, a raised, expe raised expectations. The expectations of the American working class have been so rigorously managed for the last several decades, and Bernie Sanders' campaign has busted that wide open. And I think you can, you're going to start seeing, you know, sans Bernie Sanders' leadership itself, you're going to start seeing that manifest on, in general, not just on the left, but in the broader American public. For example, we have this mass protest movement right now. Um, it's more mass in character than the Bernie Sanders campaign was. But you can see already that its demands that it's leveling are much more ambitious and have a much more materialist imagination to them than even the previous Black Lives Matter protests in 2014 and 2015. And certainly, you know, the Rodney King riots in the early 90s, right? Um, so I think that we're going to be reaping the rewards of the Bernie Sanders campaign or campaigns for a long time to come, though obviously it's up to us to take advantage of that. Thanks, Megan. I thought you put that really well. Um, and so my next question, I think, really picks up on that. Um, and this kind of idea of how, you know, these, these, the Corbyn and Sanders campaigns both kind of sprung out at a time when really it seemed that working class movements were an all-time low. Um, Leo quotes and Andrew Murray as these movements that were kind of class-focused but not class-rooted movements. Um, and, and as Megan says, you know, in that context, you know, the most appropriate strategy you would think would be this kind of pyramid type model of kind of like mm -hmm. doing base building first, working level with CLPs, union organizing, building together campaigns, running local candidates, and then ending, aiming higher. But then, you know, what actually ended up happening 
was that, you know, these huge, bold, powerful national leadership campaigns have galvanized hundreds of thousands of people. But at the same time, we didn't necessarily have that groundwork in place when these campaigns came up. Um, so, in the, you know, in Leo, in your book, you say that this had like, there were lots of advantages to this, but it also left us quite vulnerable. So can you explain a little bit more what you mean by class focus versus class rooted movements? Um, and what are the limits of trying to run socialist campaigns without first having this organized mass base? And what are the other opportunities that offers? I think, again, it's part of the process of searching for socialism, which is not something that you figure out ahead of time, but it emerges out of the way historical struggles actually happen. Uh, uh, Andrew Murray, who's uh, chief of staff of Unite, uh, Britain's largest union, uh, and the leader of uh, the anti-war campaign, one of the great leaders of the anti-war campaign in Britain, sought the war coalition, etc. He was making that point really about Occupy. It was a piece in Jacobin where he said that. Uh, and, and he was making the point about Occupy, that it is, is class focused, 99 to 1, and it, put a class map back on the agenda. Uh, it changed political discourse with that class language. It was a very crude class map, but at least it was a class map again for politics, but it wasn't class rooted. Yet in a certain way, for all of my unhappiness with the anarchist orientation of a lot of Occupy politics, uh, which I didn't think was building a sustainable uh, uh, struggle, uh, one of the great things about Occupy, uh, in a sense, what is, was that it wasn't class rooted because had it been rooted in a working class which has, had been defeated the way working classes have been defeated everywhere since the 80s, it would have reflected the limitations of that defeat. Uh, the, the fact is that uh, these parallel movements have been going on uh, whereby the institutional structures of the labor movement have continued to atrophy, even while these exciting developments have taken place on the streets and in the parties that originally came uh, to represent those movements. Uh, and what is going to be required, and it couldn't have happened uh, all in one go, is that the energy, the socialist consciousness, the organizing capacities that have been developed amongst the 50, 60,000 people who have joined the DSA or Momentum, or even I would say the 5,000 of those in each organization who are the real activists, uh, they now need to turn towards being a key force in transforming the unions in reorganizing the working class, doing that either by changing the unions or by creating new ones. And to some extent, this has already happened, uh, especially in the United States with the kind of inspiration that the Sanders campaign gave to furthering what was already going on, but is what much developed after 2016. The teacher struggles, for instance, uh, the changing of the teachers unions, which is by no means finished, but in some places has gone very far, like Los Angeles and Chicago. Uh, in the UK, uh, it has to be said that 
Corbyn could not have been elected without the emergence of a socialist leadership in the unions, really at the beginning of the 20th century, in response to the disappointments with Blairism. By 2001, 2002, this was happening. These leaders were supporting the Stop the War Coalition. They were supporting the anti-austerity struggles. Uh, they were crucial to getting Corbyn elected, especially McCluskey from Unite. That said, the, they have proved unable to transform their own organizations into dynamic working class organizations. Uh, and, and it's now going to require them being open to the new activists to go into those organizations or to go around them and to become class organizers. To learn how to do that, to get support from socialists in the labor movement to do it, that is the next crucial step. Because what you discover as soon as you as a socialist try to work inside a social democratic party like the Labor Party, and heaven knows inside the Democratic Party, is that the first barrier you will encounter to being successful as a socialist is inside those parties. That's where the first line of capitalist defense is, right? In order to be able to overcome that, you need to change the labor movements. Those parties are dependent on working class votes. To a significant extent, they're still dependent on trade union funds and organizers on election day. In order to be able to change those parties, you need to be able to change the labor movements to reorganize the class. And if that means that those parties break up as a result of successes in doing this, then it's going to require socialists taking the working class organizations with them into new political formations, or at least leaving the representatives of the bourgeoisie inside those parties, which dominate those parties, without a organizational structure rooted in the working class. Thanks, Leo. Uh, Megan, we've got questions coming up which are quite similar to that, but is there anything you'd like to add for now? Yeah, I want to actually sort of explain some stuff that's happening in the United States because I think some of it's quite heartening on this front. I mean, Leo's completely right, and I, I really like this formulation of being class-focused but not class-rooted. It seems like we've uh, taken care of, you know, number one, and now we need to move on to number two. And honestly, it's it's no small feat to actually to introduce into uh, American politics and British politics sort of the, the an orientation toward class again. But that is very different from um, an organic uh, mass working class movement that itself is focused on, on class, right? So, um, so in the United States, though, there are some heartening developments, one of which, as Leo mentioned, is the fact that the teachers unions are leading the charge among American labor unions, and specifically that reform caucuses have begun to agitate and in some cases take leadership in American teachers unions and push them to focus on more class-wide demands and sort of have a greater you know, class, class conscious orientation, which is really critical. So um, especially because a teacher, being a teacher is the number one profession in the United States, right? So, so uh, right now something is occurring that I think is, is, is really promising, which is that we have this mass protest movement and we have at least a dozen teachers unions that I am aware of which have stepped up in this moment. You know, they're not even they're not even bargaining right now. Um, 
And they've decided to step up and demand police-free schools. They're demanding, the, uh, in some cases, the disbanding of school police, which are separate police forces in American cities specifically for the schools. Or they're demanding to um, you know, defund uh, the police, cut police budgets, and get police out of schools and replace them with non-police alternatives. So the labor, movements are actually, the labor movement, led by the teachers, is starting to orient itself toward the de broader demands of the working class, which is very critical for this process of transformation that Leo is talking about. Um, socialists have not you know, led every single initiative on this front, but certainly in many, of, in many of the unions, you will find socialists at the helm of a lot of this transformation. Uh, you will also find, for example, members of, uh, specifically members of DSA in some of these unions agitating for precisely this, this kind of reorientation. Another um, heartening example that I, that I think, it's not, you know, um, we shouldn't blow it up into something that's exemplary of a trend in the labor movement. I think that would be a little bit too rosy, but we should dwell on it as the kind of thing that we might want to replicate um, is this uh, emergency workers organizing committee, which is also known as EWOC, which some of you may have heard about, but if you haven't, I will tell you about it. Um, EWOC is a joint project that emerged during the coronavirus, the early sort of the early days of the coronavirus crisis. It's a joint project of the Democratic Socialists of America America and UE, the United Electrical Workers, which is a very progressive uh, union. And it was actually one of the first unions to endorse Bernie Sanders full-throatedly. I was at a Bernie rally last year where one of the UE local presidents got 13,000 people to chant, strike, strike, strike. So that gives you a sense of what UE is all about. Um, and so UE and DSA have joined forces on this project called EWOC, the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee, the purpose of which is to reach out as broadly as possible and locate workers in essential industries who are currently working during the coronavirus crisis, who do not have union representation, who are ready to organize their workplaces specifically because of coronavirus related issues. And they've managed to get, I believe, 500 volunteers for this and about 1,500 work, uh, workers to reach out to try to organize their workplaces. The incredible thing about this is that it um, a lot of these UE and DSA organizers met each other on the Bernie Sanders campaign. And they also developed skills uh, through the Bernie Sanders campaign, including a model of organizing and dis distributed organizing that they're now employing in this project. So you can see the sort of maturation of the movement and you can see how this elect electoral politics has actually given cadres the skills that they're now transferring over to in what is essentially what this project boils down to is to locate uh, organic workplace leaders and equip them with not just the logistical support, but also the skills and even in some cases, the political education that's necessary to organize their workplaces, thus building a bench in the workplace, building a sort of what we call a militant minority in the workplace and taking advantage of this crisis in order to do that because this crisis is driving people out of the woodwork. Um, it's been pretty successful so far. Uh, many of the campaigns that have been undertaken have actually already won their demands. And in any case, even if the campaigns are not victorious, socialists, unionists, and militant workers are now getting in touch with each other in this crisis, which is exactly what needs to be happening to affect the kinds of changes that Leo is talking about. And we can trace a lot of that back to the Bernie Sanders campaign and the way that it facilitated connections between people and gave people skills and confidence too. 
And uh, lastly, I will say that another heartening development is that in DSA, we have we passed a resolution to orient ourselves toward the labor movement in a particular manner, which uh, is the rank and file strategy. Some of you may have heard of it and some of you may not have, but essentially it's a bit more complicated than this, but to boil it down, it basically says that rank and file power is the source of union power and socialists should be oriented toward making connections with and in the rank and file of workplaces instead of merely sort of acting as um, as uh, you know coalition partners to union leadership. Though of course many union leaders are wonderful, and we must act as coalition partners to them in excellent endeavors. Right. Um, what this has led to actually in DSA is a pretty significant wave. It's at the beginning of the wave, but it's significant in the sense that it hasn't happened in decades, and it's it's definitely happening, of young socialist cadres industrializing, which is to say taking jobs in strategic industries with the intention of becoming unionists and transforming those unions to make them more sort of politically suitable entities. Um, and there's a lot of study that's going into this. This is not sort of like half half-assed like you know revolutionary uh, adventurism there's a there's some serious political education that's going into preparing people to actually take lifetime jobs which they will be good at ideally and something that they will actually enjoy because it is for the rest of your life um, and and thus to sort of root socialists in the working class in a way that was intentionally severed by McCarthyism and the second Red Scare in the United States to sort of repair those broken linkages so things are happening on this front they're not happening on a huge scale, but they're happening for the first time in decades. And it's our job to sort of build on and deepen and expand those phenomena and do them at scale, ideally. Thanks, Megan. Those are great um, concrete examples. And I hope maybe we can come back to, to a couple of them um, as we go on. Uh, before we get to the next question, uh, I am going to take this quick opportunity to plug, uh, as we do every time, the TWT Supporters Network. Um, so we've had 70 supporters join since we started doing these calls, which has been a huge help to us to enable to uh, continue to put them on. Uh, we're now planning as uh, the World Transform TWT to considerably scale up our work over the summer, uh, but to make that happen, we're going to need your help. Uh, the current crisis means we can't guarantee receiving the funding we usually rely on to continue our work. So if you think political education like this is important, um, and if you're in a position to do so, uh, which we uh, we know many of us are not currently, but if you are, please donate the equivalent of an hour's wage per month at theworldtransform.org slash support. Uh, that's gonna show up in the chat uh, in a second. And um, that's it for the advertising break. Thank you so much. Okay, um, so let's get back to it. Uh, let's move on to talk about the, mostly the platforms that these campaigns were built around. Built around. So issues like the NHS, Medicaid for all, you know, these were often dismissed as reformist strategies or a distraction from real organizing. Um, even the Green New Deal, when we brought it out, uh, was, was criticized as co-opting the climate movement and watering down its. Um, both of you kind of, in some way, supported this strategy of Andre Gortz, this kind of idea of that, you know, socialism isn't about building islands of socialism in a capitalist own, but in structural reforms or these kind of non-reformist reforms that, you know, that kind of will build more class antagonisms, like, you know, change the balance of power, uh, build these democratic dynamics. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about this idea of non-reformist reforms with regards to the Sanders and Corbyn 
um, or the movements behind Sanders and Corbyn. Um, what's the potential for this kind of strategy? Where do you see the biggest potential for non-reformist reforms, but also what are the limits for them when you actually enter office? So for example, you know, not everything can be a non-reformist reform. We saw, for example, with Brexit, um, all the kind of toing and froing around in parliament, completely demobilized Labour supporters and bogged Corbyn down with kind of like the party and electoral politics. So yeah, talk more about how you see these campaigns in the in the context of non-reformist reforms. Uh, we'll start with Megan. Sure. Um, well, I mean, essentially, there's a difference that I think is often alighted, and this is a problem of having a sort of uh, a, a De decrepit left <laughs> with a, with a insufficient political education between reforms and reform reformism um, accusations of uh, reformism are sort of every, everywhere you turn and some of them are um, are accurate and some of them are inaccurate. But reform, reformism essentially refers to this idea, yeah, sort of like creating creating islands of uh, socialism and a sea of capitalism. Or the way that I sort of tend to think of it is, is this sort of conception that you will stack reforms on top of each other until you get to like a bearable society, right? Um, and then you're done. You're like, we reformed it. Um, so that's not what you know. But obviously, that's not what uh, all reforms are oriented toward. In fact, the struggle for reforms is absolutely critical because otherwise, how would you ever inspire anybody to get off their ass and do anything for their own self-interest? You would only end up inspiring people who were playing out a sort of fantasy scenario of being revolutionaries in their head if you didn't actually attempt to institute reforms that would transform people's lives in a, in a real material way. So um, reforms are critical. Um, Obviously, this is uh, knowledge that was this was not this is knowledge that was available to revolutionary socialists up to a certain point, and then it seemed to become unavailable to them somehow. But you know, Rosa Luxemburg obviously would, would say the same thing, and Mar you know Marx um, you know Marx's organization, the International Workingmen's Association, like went all in on the eight-hour workday. That is far less than what Marx himself advocated, which is the abolition of wage labor. Obviously, but the eight-hour workday was supposed to be something that was ambitious enough to inspire people and make them think outside of you know the sort of ordinary strictures of what kind of piecemeal piecemeal changes they might expect but not so ambitious that it would lose credibility i mean you could actually win it you could win it if you fought for it and the idea was that in the struggle for something like the eight hour day something that would genuinely transform working people's lives that people would discover their own capacity um, and they would develop their own capacities for um, for further struggle, for for democratic decision making. That they would develop class consciousness. That they would develop skills and relationships with each other, and build institutions. And that is precisely what happened in the struggle for the eight-hour day, particularly in uh, the United States, but also elsewhere. Um, it led to a higher degree of class struggle. Right. So this is the kind of approach to reforms that I think is necessary for socialists to uh, affect. And importantly, it's not just about how you go about winning reforms, but it's also about identifying reforms that if one will uh, modify the balance of power between workers and capitalists. So the eight hour day is an example because, um, you know, previously it was just, you know, work, work until you literally can't work anymore. And obviously there's no time for organizing if that's the case. So uh, it was conceived of as, you know, if you were to win at the eight hour day, you would actually um, modify the balance of power somewhat between workers and, and capitalists. Um, but I think an even better example of a non-reformist reform or a structural reform, which is a phrase that Gores also uses, is Medicare for all in the United States, which is the attempt to you know, cover everybody um, with medical insurances provided publicly and publicly financed. And 
obviously this would just help people live better lives. That's why it's inspiring to working class people who are not already radicalized. But additionally, if one, one thing that it can do is make workers less afraid to lose their jobs. Because if, you're, if your insurance is tethered to employment, you become cowed and you become submissive. So the idea is to empower workers through winning this demand. And another thing is to free up unions to negotiate over other things besides benefits, essentially, which is all unions do. And that keeps them kind of servile and keeps them in a kind of um, uh, service, a service uh, unionism relationship. They're sort of providing a, a service for a fee to the dues or a sort of fee for service for their members, which is not a radical way to approach unionism, right? So the idea is of Medicare for all is not simply, oh, we'll win Medicare for all because that's the next step. And then we'll win something else because that's the next step beyond that. And we'll stack it all up until one day, look, we've decommodified healthcare. It's actually much deeper than that. The idea is to empower the working class both in the struggle for Medicare for all because it's inspiring and because it would transform people's lives genuinely. And also to once it's one free up the working class to actually build on the lessons that it learned and the relationships that it built and the skills that it honed in the struggle for Medicare for all to then build on that going forward. So that's the difference between the conception of reformism and the sort of non-reformist reform approach. I'm sure Leo can add to that because I learned a lot of that from Leo. Well, that's nice of you to say, Megan, but I was actually going to quote a marvelous line you have from Rosa Luxemburg in your book with Micah, Bigger Than Bernie, uh, where she's saying to the ultra leftists, um, while uh, the, you can't gradually realize socialism through piling up social reforms, she says, between social reforms and revolution, there exists an indissoluble tie. The struggle for reforms is its means. The social revolution is its aim. So then the th key thing is not to, by virtue of the explosion of protests, last year in Extinction Rebellion, especially in the UK, or this year with the Black Lives Matter uh, movements going on around us, to come to the conclusion that we are on the verge of an insurrection. And that anybody who tries to engage in the slow process of party building and class reformation uh, is missing the moment of revolution. This is an illusion. And it's an illusion that we need to be very, very sensitive to. But at the same time, we need to remain absolutely clear that we want the types of reform we want to advance them ideologically, discursively, and if we can get them done in the state, we want them to be the kind that are open to carrying the class struggle further. The kinds of reforms, as Megan was saying, that give confidence to working class people, rather than give them a partnership with capital and say, you see, it's over. One of the biggest problems with uh, uh, some of Sanders' uh, proposals, and sometimes you found them uh, in, in the Labour Party manifestos as well under Corbyn and McDonald, uh, was that what we want to achieve is workers' representations on corporate boards of directors. Now, insofar as that would give workers some confidence that there are people in the state who want to do things for us, great. But insofar as that's the end of it, well, we know 
that those types of partnerships, workers on boards, usually have workers aligning with their managers in competitive relationships against other corporate corporations and their workers. So we need the type of reforms that are oriented to strengthening the class's capacity to struggle in the broad sense. And insofar as they are those kinds of reforms, they will open the path, they will open the way uh, to changing the state so that it goes on to further reforms, which will take power away from capital and take power away from state bureaucrats. To be quite specific, uh, you know, I think in the current context, while the policy and discursive inroads that the Corbyn and Sanders leaderships have provided are enormous in the context of this coronavirus crisis. How can anyone not say, look how right they were, even to be calling for public ownership of broadband at a time when school children are dependent on access to uh, a computer in order to continue their education, let alone the obvious obviousness of, of, of public health care. Um, uh, so there's a tremendous opening now by virtue of this coronavirus crisis, but we need to go far beyond this to say, look, we need a public health system, not simply universal health care, but the kind of public health system, uh, as a tremendous article by Rollins in Tribune puts it, this in the last issue of Tribune where we don't have the appalling development of, that we see whereby it is people in nursing homes who are in the majority dying. Why are they in the majority dying? Because the type of care they were getting, not health care they were getting, the type of care to live in those nursing homes was so appalling. These privatized or even if they're public underfunded nursing homes, where the, the, the frontline staff were so overworked, where the conditions in the nursing homes were so poor, and then you get a terrible health crisis, which does have medical implications. And of course, that's where the majority of deaths are. So this shows us that the type of reforms we need are the types of reforms which are oriented not only to the provision of public services in medicine, but transforming the whole conception we have of what health is in society to preventative health care, which means providing people with the type of conditions that are humane, which uh, a privatized uh, or an underfunded public system cannot possibly do. These need to be the types of reforms which are changing the institutions that are providing public services as well. Uh, they need to be democratized and accountability in them needs not only to be uh, to the rule of law, although that's important to make sure there aren't crooks like the type that's leading the United States at the moment, uh, but, but accountable to the communities which they're serving. Uh, and insofar as the Kerman campaign to change the police system uh, that is taking place in the United States makes a contribution to that, it will be enormous. 
because that is talking about changing the state, changing the state apparatus in a way that it is accountable to the communities it's supposed to be serving. Um, uh, similarly, you mentioned the Green New Deal. Those who argue that it's a co-optation of the radical environmental movement seem to me to be missing the boat. Uh, of course, it's putting forward reforms, but it's actually both the Green New Deal is advocated by AOC in the United States originally, and the Green New Deal that was at the core of the Labour Party manifesto uh, in December 2019, uh, is actually doing, proposing to do something about it other than complain, uh, other than point to the crisis, which is, of course, a very real one. And the types of reforms they were advancing precisely were impressive because they were about developing state capacities, developing the capacities to do the kind of infrastructure that states currently do not have the capacity to do. Uh, we need to get away from solving the environmental crisis with international meetings and rhetoric about the nature of the crisis to actually redeveloping the capacities of states to, to be not relying on private construction companies or private uh, uh, automobile firms or private uh, uh, energy firms to provide a solution to this greatest crisis of humanity that will also apply to taking the banks and the tech companies and turning them into public utilities. Just as it's clear, we need to turn the energy companies into public utilities. Uh, these all operate in a synergy together. And I do think that if we conceive of reforms this way, we will in fact be getting to uh, finding an answer to the search for socialism. Okay, so I have, there's been a lot, thank you, that that was, there was lots in there that, that we can pull on. I have one more um, question for myself, but then there's been a lot of chatter um, in the chat about, uh, about UBI, um, both pro and con. And actually, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm certainly curious, and I'm sure a lot of people listening would be curious just to see um, where you would situate that specific reform um, or that specific sort of idea in the context of this sort of, you know, reformist versus non-reformist reforms, and you know, especially at the way it's being taken up now um, in the context of the coronavirus crisis um, as a way of, uh, of you know, of dealing with sort of mass mass unemployment um, and uh, and you know, sort of people and and a form of sort of income support that could then be generalized. And uh, Leo, I don't know if you want to tackle that one uh, quickly, and then we'll we'll go on. Uh, well, there's nothing wrong with uh, the state providing uh, uh, benefits to people. And if that's a way of, of uh, doing that, that's fine. The danger is a universal basic income, which has the effect of undermining uh, current social benefits. And that's a danger, uh, which are often targeted in important ways, for instance, to the disabled. Uh, uh, so it, it's a danger. It's also a danger insofar as it individualizes people. Uh, of course, uh, there's a further danger perhaps, and then it's a danger that 
people don't recognize that within the framework of a capitalist labor market, it's not only the limits on how much states can spend that will put a cap on what the basic in income will be defined as, uh, but also the necessity of getting people to work in a capitalist economy. In other words, creating some sort of material incentive of a negative kind is what capitalism needs in order to get people to work. And it's already the case in Canada, I'd be surprised if it isn't uh, in Britain, uh, that the quite handsome uh, uh, emergency benefit of $500 a week, $2,000 a month, uh, which is higher than the wages of many of the frontline workers in the nursing homes uh, were getting uh, uh, before this crisis. But it's already the case that the government is trying to amend the provisions so that people will be forced to go back to work. Uh, because to go back to work on the minimum wage in Canada was actually less than what they're getting in this emergency benefit. And they're trying to find ways of policing people. Uh, so we need to be careful not to be naive about the type of UBI we're likely to get without the kinds of much more radical structural reforms, which will take us out of a dependence on capital accumulation, uh, which will change people's orientation to work. So they aren't working out of fear of hunger, but working out of a sense of wanting to contribute to society as well as secure their own human dignity. Uh, thank, thanks, Leo. And yeah, it's interesting to, uh, to mention that benefit in uh, in Canada, I mean, in, in the United States, the um, the addition to uh, to unemployment benefits is also, I think, six hundred dollars a week on top of the regular uh, UI benefits. Although that uh, I'm sure will run out soon. Um, Megan, I want to start with you with this. We'll make this the last question, um, and we'll start with Megan. I want to wrap also as much as as many things that we've seen in the chat and 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 sort of things that are you know bring it, bring things really up to the present uh, with this one. Um, I mean, we've talked about the, the reforms and the policy ideas uh, behind Corbyn and Sanders. I want to have, I want to finish with some of the institutions um, that they're leaving behind. So, you know, we have momentum uh, in the UK, the Democrat, the DSA um, in the US, which of course predates the Sanders campaign, but has seen a huge explosion um, in membership since that campaign in a way is, you know, a, in a way a totally new organization now uh, than it was pre the, pre the Sanders campaign. Um, in some ways, you know, these organizations are very similar. They have this dynamic young base. They've seen explosive growth, uh, very impressive um, ground campaigning um, and uh, attempts to uh, integrate into sort of broader movement politics. Um, at the same time, they face, you know, very different institutional contexts. The Democratic Party is not really a party, a political par party in any recognizable sense, especially recognizable, you know, in most other places in the world. Um, while uh, labor, you know, for all its flaws, is still a mass membership organization. Um, and at the same time, both of these institutions have been criticized for placing too much emphasis on the electoral sphere. Um, I wanted to ask you how, you know, given all of this and given the fact that, again, you know, we're at a point where, where these campaigns have effectively ended the Corbyn Project and the Sanders one, um, how can these left institutions best take advantage of this political moment that we're in um, right now? What are the challenges and the opportunities they face? Um, and I think I would specifically love to hear 
um, about how they are relating and what the challenges and opportunities are to the mass sort of protests that have broken out in not just in the United States, but I mean, starting in the United States around around Black Lives Matter, around police brutality, and around these um, and around these demands. Um, so how how is that sort of newly organized left relating to this political moment, um, and what are the challenges and opportunities there? Well. It's so, it's so like it's happening right now. So it's so hard to sum up how DSA is relating to the movement. I mean, it's different city by city. A lot of it has to do with how good of a job an individual DSA chapter has done rooting itself in the activist layer of the working class of a given city over the last several years. Um, and so in cities where that's you know been relatively effective, then DSA has been um, successful in being able to like co-lead some of these marches and being able to like craft the demands that are being placed on the state um, and so on. Uh, in cities where it's not been effective, I've noticed that DSA chapters have uh, been somewhat recessive because this is, uh, I mean, it's a black, it's a black led movement and most DSA members are white. And so I think that it occurs to people that they ought to sort of hang back and they also don't have the relationships already to tap into if they didn't want to hang back. So it varies city by city. I would say that just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can't say for certain how true this is because I haven't done like a broad survey. We'll have to see after all this is over, right? But I think that the chapter that probably is doing the best job being integrated, at least of the very large chapters, is probably going to be the Chicago chapter. And that's an interesting case study for a number of reasons. One, the Chicago chapter of DSA has done a very good job um, building rela relationships already with other organizations. It hasn't been kind of a uh, um, sectarian or or uh, self-important. It's uh, it's it's built relationships over many years, um, and those are the, it's tapping into those now. It's built up goodwill also to be able to like co-lead marches with organizations that have a much higher percentage of people of color members. So that's really important. And another thing about the Chicago chapter that I think is instructive is that in Chicago they elected six. DSA members to their city council, which means that 12% of the Chicago city council is DSA members. And so A, that helped them uh, build relationships with um, the other groups that were backing those campaigns, which they're tapping into now, which is good. And B, uh, those, um, those uh, representatives themselves have been using their office as a sort of tribune for um, the sort of DS, the ideal DSA version of the uh, demands. So it's uh, they're pushing these, the six Chicago socialists are pushing the demand to defund the police and invest in social services that should have been there all along and including a kind of socialist analysis as they push that demand while also foregrounding racism and racist police brutality in Chicago. Uh, they published an op-ed together that was on the front page of the Chicago Sun-Times. And I even noticed that when the Chicago Teachers Union used the demand hashtag defund the police on Twitter, they were they were adding, they were tagging Chicago DSA, and that also the political opponents of the demand to defund the police were attributing it to DSA. So there was a kind of, there's a kind of ownership over the defund the police demand, not, a, not an exclusive ownership, but I think a pretty impressive uh, ownership over um, over that demand that Chicago has been able to affect. Now that said, that's not happening everywhere. There are plenty of, there are chapters where I worry that DSA has been um, uh, far too recessive and uh, unable to actually find a, a foothold in the protests. 
protests that are happening. Some of that has to do with the fact that maybe the protests that are happening in those cities are not super highly organized to begin with. So it's hard to know how you would find a foothold. Some of it has to do with having bad blood with other organizations or just not having goodwill with other organizations and so on. So it's a challenge and it's very interesting to see how it's playing out. Um, but I um, I have, this is to follow up on something I mentioned previously, you know, that one of DSA's projects is EWOC, the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee. Well, you know, they've meant initially to respond to um, workers who are developing a kind of organic militancy and desire to organize their coworkers because uh, they've faces, face, faced problems at work due to the pandemic. Well, I, they've, they've switched gears now and then they're continuing to do that, but they're also including workers who are experiencing retaliation for protest related activities at work because a lot of workers like at Starbucks if you for a while they said if you wore a black lives matter shirt you had to take it off things like that so so again sort of ewok is becoming adaptable and trying to figure out how to incorporate this uh, respond to the needs of this moment and this movement um, so it's a mixed bag and I think that some DSA chapters are doing great jobs, some DSA chapters are struggling, and we'll have to see. I will say though that you asked to answer the second part of your question, which is how should we take advantage of this moment more generally? Um, I think that obviously the uh, DSA has to become, has to be extremely flexible and adaptable, adaptable and figure out how to slot itself into this particular uh, protest movement, but that also it needs to continue strategizing going forward beyond and incorporating and responding to the protest movement, for example, in its electoral work. So DSA needs to continue um, running candidates. And I think specifically that DSA needs to be running our own candidates. And what I mean by that is people who come from DSA. So for as DSA was getting on its feet, um, there was a tendency to a DSA candidate was often someone who was like a progressive who was already running, who had a lot of overlap with DSA and maybe maybe felt comfortable calling themselves a socialist who would get a sort of seal of approval from the organization. The problem with that, not that we shouldn't do that, but the problem with relying on that is that when right now we have no means of disciplining candidates because we're not powerful enough to make them think about us when they're inside the halls of power facing all kinds of pressures. There are two different kinds of pressures that they can face, both of which are conservatizing. One, they can have their arm twisted. Two, as uh, Leo put it in an interview that I listened to recently, they might actually come to discover that their colleagues don't eat babies, as you said, and this actually can be its own kind of pressure, you know, to want to sort of uh, make nice with people that you work with. So because of that, and because we're not strong yet, not strong enough yet to simply discipline them sh through our sheer force, through the fear that if they if they uh, cross us, then they won't have our support, which is absolutely critical for anyone to have, right? Since we're not there yet, we do need to have true believers in there. We need to have people who are gonna be able to have a political compass of their own and have relationships with people in DSA that they personally would feel heartbroken if they had known that they had, uh, that they had let down their comrades. I mean, it's actually very, very important. And I've been watching this play out in the United States and the politicians who I am, the representatives who I'm most proud of, most proud to see representing DSA are people who I know for a fact, uh, you know, 
kept the calendar of their old DSA chapter before they were cajoled into running for office, right? Not just somebody who drifts through and they're already running and we give them a stamp of approval. Those people are not ours and we can't keep them close to us. So we need to be running, we need to be, we basically we need to be, uh, we need to be sending cadre up and we need to be running them for office. Of course, this poses a problem, which is that we need those people for other things too. We can't do it with everybody. And Leo's written about this extensively, um, is that you have to find out the right, you have to figure out the right balance. I mean, in Oakland, where I was living before, we talked about running someone for city council and one of the, um, we, we ended up not doing it and I won't go into it, but one of the things that was enticing was that the person could take five staff members with them. Well, that's five DSA members employed by the city of Oakland. How, how much better can it get? We're getting paid to be tribunes of socialism in the city of Oakland. And then we started thinking, can we spare five can we spare our five best people right now? Um, it's that, that, I mean, it's not, we have a pretty big group I and mean, there's thousands of members, but the activist core, I mean, people are busy. People are busy doing good stuff. And if you take them, if you reassign them, you might end up with some problems of getting siloed off into the electoral sphere. So these are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about as we prepare to continue engaging in um, what we call class struggle elections, uh, specifically elections geared toward heightening the level of class struggle and uh, uh, waging class conflict through electoral politics. And additionally, I think that we need to focus on the movements and I think we specifically need to focus on making inroads into the labor movement, but I won't recapitulate that because we kind of touched on it already. But thank you all. Thanks, Megan. That went you know, from, from one end uh, to the other, what we need to do. We'll give Leo the, the last word and I know there were things in there that I'm sure he'll, um, grab onto? Well, well, the first thing I'd want to say is that The World Transformed is a spin-off of Momentum. Uh, the type of uh, uh, breakthrough that was made in terms of socialist discussions, strategy, debates, uh, and political education, which first occurred at Labour Party conferences uh, uh, when World Transformed emerged. Uh, uh, you know, it, it changed Labour Party conferences from being a trade fair uh, where, you know, firms would bring their goods in the hope that a Labour government would give them business. Uh, uh, you know, the world transformed became an arena of uh, cultural exchange and political education at party conferences. Well, what you're doing uh, with this type of uh, webinar and you were already doing beforehand was taking that out of the annual Labour Party conference alone and trying to do that uh, in a general way in many communities across Britain uh, through the course of the year. Um, insofar as that type of this type of political education can continue uh, to be developed by the DSA and by Momentum, and Momentum was largely not engaged in political education. One needs to recognize that outside of its terrific campaign videos, which were educational in themselves, it wasn't engaged in political education. So uh, one needs to carry forward what the TWT has done, I think, uh, in a really serious way. What I'd say, however, is that that needs to be done not only vis-a-vis uh, -vis the membership of the Labour Party or activists in the communities. It needs to be done vis-a-vis -vis 
the people who are uh, in parliament or have ambitions to enter parliament. Because as Megan was suggesting, uh, there's no sense them becoming such unless they themselves are relatively developed socialists, unless they themselves have a class map, unless they themselves are oriented to taking what they learn uh, inside the state, the contradictions, the difficulties, the opportunities, and take that back to the people who got them there. Uh, you know, if the Blairites and the Clintonites were much more oriented to the political education of, con of Congress people and members of the Parliamentary Labour Party than the left has been. Uh, we need to take responsibility for turning the candidates into socialists and making them accountable socialists. This is absolutely a crucial task. That also applies to the discussion we were having, for instance, about, about universal basic income. And I saw a lot of chattering about that uh, of a good kind. Uh, said, look, UBI is not intended to get people back to work. Well, the point is to have the type of political discussion about it that doesn't deny that, but that says, look, why is a capitalist state likely to adopt this? In what way is it likely to adopt? is going to adopt it in a way that doesn't undermine the capitalist labor market. So a UBI can be advanced, but it needs to be advanced in a way that lessens the chains of the capitalist labor market, that takes the dependence of the state on capital accumulation of multinational corporations uh, away. So it becomes part of a socialist strategy, a structural reform. It's not a matter of saying people who perform put forward UBI don't want it to be something much bigger than it can be with the existing state, but it's the type of political education that's needed, both of MPs or of congressmen um, and of members, so that they have a more sophisticated understanding of the, of the strategic orientations that are required. Uh, look, momentum is going through this right at the moment. What will momentum be? is to some extent going to be decided by the elections for uh, the management committee that is going on right now. Um, and it seems to me that all of the demands that are being put forward for how to change it by the various sides, the various slates in that campaign are basically right. They're basically oriented to turning momentum into a uh, uh, mobilizing and socializing and campaigning an educational organization rather than uh, being a uh, support network for socialist MPs alone. And that's very impressive. And they want to be not so oriented to a struggle inside the party alone, but be oriented to changing the base of the party so it can become a center of working class life again. I think everybody wants that, but there is a lot of factionalism of a kind that I think is very worrying um, in the current campaign going on for what momentum will be. And I think people need to recognize that their main enemies are not in momentum. Their main adversaries are not in momentum. Uh, if we're going to go forward, uh, the 
differences that exist in the DSA uh, and, and Memento uh, need to be treated in a, a comradely socialist way. Um, I would hope under the kind of creative leadership that Megan is giving to the DSA or you guys are giving through the TWT. Um, but really a lot hangs right now on whether momentum and the DSA with their 50, 60,000 members can continue to be major socialist forces in Britain and the United States. And other countries will take a lot of lessons from this. Really a lot depends on this. And people need to walk very gingerly while being very ambitious. These are the largest political organizations of the socialist left in a very, very, very long time. Let's not blow it. Thanks, Leo. And thanks, Megan. I think that's a really good note to finish it on. Just kind of, I really like this idea about talking don't, about- Don't blow it. Don't, don't blow it. <laughs> um, I like the idea of this kind of, you know, building the link between movements and elected officials, but also like building forms of democratic accountability between the mm -hmm. two of them. And also that, you know, we're in really dangerous times right now. Um, and the way we tread from now on will really define like whether we're able to move forward going on. Um, okay, so on that note, I'm just gonna, we're, we're nearly at the end of the call. Um, so TWT are trying to organize as many online spaces as possible for people to interact. We've created a step-by-step -step guide for supporting people to run political education and organizing meetings online. We'll post a link in the chat now. Um, so keep an eye out for all the groups and other kinds of political education we're doing, organizing meetings, and of course, tune into the call, the same call in two weeks. Um, and of course, once again, um, if you are able to join the TWT Supporters Network, uh, as Leo said, as uh, Megan's also said, political education on the left is more important than ever uh, for ourselves, uh, for people who want to enter the state, enter movements, enter trade unions, um, to rebuild really working class institutions. Um, this crisis poses a real risk to organizations like us uh, who are small and trying to do this work right now. Uh, please go to theworldtransform.org support if you can um, and if you haven't already. Um, and we will be back in a couple weeks uh, with Leo. Our guests will be Sam Gindin and Christine Berry. We'll be talking about the coronavirus crisis um, and we look forward to seeing all of you and more then. Thanks again a lot. Good night. Tonight, we're going to 
fast forward a bit to the present and look at the political project around Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party um, and look at that alongside uh, the project around Bernie Sanders and what these two tell us about left strategy today. Uh, and we're very lucky to be joined by Megan Day, author of Bigger Than Bernie from the USA. Uh, hi, Megan. Um, in the final session, two weeks from now, we're going to bring things right up to the very present moment and also uh, talk about the coronavirus crisis with Leo, Sam, uh, Gindin, and Christine Berry. Um, as you probably know, this series is hosted by the World Transformed and Verso Books. Um, we will be running these calls every other Thursday night at 8 p.m. with the last one in two weeks. So remember to keep this time free and tune in. And I think we currently have over 120 people um, on the call, which is really amazing. And people have been also uh, watching these after the fact. So thanks everyone for joining us now and later. My name is Michal. And I'm Kyla. Um, okay, so in the last few months, we've seen the entirety of the left in the UK and the US throw all of its energies into electoral campaigns to elect socialist candidates. So Corbyn as head of the Labour government in the UK and Sanders to the Democratic nomination, both of which were ultimately defeated. Um, since then, we've had endless postmortems about what went wrong, whether it was Brexit, the Red Wall, identity politics, battles with the right wing of the Labour Party, the Democratic establishment. Um, so in this session, we're not going to directly address these issues. We're going to look a little bit deeper at more generally what the Corbyn and Sanders campaigns can tell us about the role of electoral politics in building the left and working class movements. Uh, so what is what kind of left strategy are we adopting when we take on electoral campaigns? Um, and as we mentioned at the outset, we're really lucky to be joined by Megan Day uh, in this conversation. Megan is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, uh, the author with Micah Utrecht of Bigger Than Bernie from Verso Books, and an activist with the Los Angeles chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA. Um, so we're very excited to have her join us from across an ocean and a continent. Uh, good morning. Uh, Leo Panich, um, who's been on this series from the beginning, is Emeritus Professor of Political Science at York University uh, and the author of, I have a list of, lo a long list of books here, I'll just say numerous books. Um, we're going to go uh, and do the same thing as we did last time. Uh, we're going to run this webinar as a long Q&A uh, session, so we're going to spend about the first 30 minutes on our initial questions with uh, Leo and Megan, and then after that, once again, uh, we really hope you'll do the work for us, make this a collective project. So when questions come up for you, um, anytime as the speakers are speaking now, before they've even said a word, uh, please post them in the chat. We'll be watching the questions as they arrive and we'll try our best to include and work them into discussion um, as much as we can. Um, and we'll get started right away. And actually I'm gonna ask the first question. I have a question um, that's for both uh, Megan and, and Leo. Um, and in a way, it comes out of our last session, uh, which, you know, we ended with the triumph of Blairism in the UK, um, in the US in many ways was mirrored by, you know, the DLC, the Atari Democrats, uh, sort of triumphing Clinton, Clintonism taking over the Democratic Party. Um, and if you talked to most people on the left, I think even just, you know, five years ago, maybe, uh, you would probably have heard that electoral politics was a dead end. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party as the graveyard of movements, Corbyn and the Socialist Campaign Group, uh, and their toehold in the Labour Party as a sort of lost cause, and so on and so on. Um, I think the last five years have dramatically shifted things in the UK and the US um, in this respect, uh, with electoral campaigns becoming a, if not the central left organizing vehicle. 
Um, so what we wanted to start with is basically what do the rise of the Sanders and Corbyn political projects tell us about this old thorny tension between electoral and non-electoral politics? Um, and what, if anything, is changed by the fact that both these projects, um, as Kyla said in the outset, have ultimately failed in their stated goal um, of winning an election or, uh, in Sanders' case, a nomination. Uh, why don't we start with uh, Leo and then go to Megan. Uh, thanks, Mikhail. Glad to be back here again. Uh, well, I, I think that the question you're posing really is a way to restate um, what the central theme of Colin Lee's and my book is, that this is part of the long historical process of searching for socialism. Um, although there was a clear distinction between uh, the moment between the anti-globalization movement, Seattle 1999, and uh, Corbyn in 2015 and Sanders in 2016. Um, one shouldn't polarize that too much, this difference between protest and politics. What was the case was that once there was no socialist alternative at, in the party political arena, uh, with Blairism, with the triumph of uh, Clintonism, with the demise of the communist parties. Um, it was very much the case that those socialists who remain in the electoral arena were mainly oriented to supporting the protests. This is what made Corbyn distinctive as a politician that he wasn't attuned to spending his time in Westminster, that he was out there in every struggle in the streets. And when the struggle in the streets did lead to some avenues for pressure on the state, which wasn't always the case, but when it did, it would be he or John McDonnell, other people in the campaign group who would rent rooms in parliament where people would come and make their representation. Uh, and I think either Corbin McDonald said at one point that they felt that their main task was to try to get spaces in Parliament for movement activists to come in and make a case inside the state. What happened rather suddenly, and it was a reflection of the spontaneity of the movements, I think, was that uh, uh, with the emergence of uh, Corbyn and Sanders as uh, campaigning as socialists inside those parties. The frustrations that were fed by protesters in terms of not bringing about change and the recognition on the part of people in protest movements that people were running for positions who were supporters of those movements led to them spontaneously uh, uh, I think, flocking into uh, the party political arena. Uh, in, in a sense, the same thing happened with Syriza. Uh, you know, Syriza made its distinctive move in 2008 by being the party which supported the student strikes in Greece that year. Uh, this was seen as a heinous crime on the part even of the Communist Party who treated the student protests as the Jean Provocateur 
uh, from the security state. By, they showed themselves as distinctive by coming out in support of the movements. And then suddenly, out of the blue, uh, Syriza was a party with less than 10% of the vote, but when in the run-up to the 2012 election, uh, Tsipras said in a television debate, we'll form a coalition with anyone to get into the state and stop the bleeding. I think the frustration of people in Syntagma Square with not being able to actually change the politics of austerity led them spontaneously to flow behind Syriza in the 2012 election. And that changed the whole calculation. What it suddenly meant, and this was the case with Labour and with the Democrats by 2015, 2016, was that there was a socialist anti-capitalist alternative electorally. And soon as there was that, it led the protesters to join the electoral arena. It was the absence of that. I think that that uh, was present before. Now, I'll just end with this. They've been defeated, if you like, in the expectation that socialists would form a government. Both the Corbyn and the Sanders movements have been defeated in that respect. But perhaps that should not have been the main objective. Uh, the main objective uh, should have been to create a socialist presence again in the political arena, broadly defined. And insofar as these developments help to define the movements explicitly as socialists, to bring together again protest and politics, rather than to have them divorced, as you said, people saying politics is a dead end, right? Or people saying movements don't go anywhere. The key thing is to create the kind of politics where they feed off each other. And the whole point of getting elected is to continue to be organizers of campaigns, continue to mobilize people. As, as Megan says in her marvelous book that you uh, mentioned, uh, uh, Sanders called himself at one point the organizer-in-chief. Uh, Corbyn, in 2017, right after the election, went to the Labour Party conference said, and said, the crucial thing is for us not to get stuck in Westminster, but to be out there where real politics is, across the country in the streets. He lost that perspective and dynamic in the face of the uh, uh, Brexit crisis, but their orientation reflected a new kind of politics. And, and I think that's changed or should have changed both the movements and, and the parties. Thank, thanks, Leo. Um, and I was actually just going to use that very same uh, that very same line, uh, line of organizer in chief in asking Megan how that uh, what that tension looks like from her vantage point and from the and from the US. Well, that was, a, that was a great answer, Leo. And to build off of that a little bit, I think that if we had drawn up, if I, by we I mean socialists, if we had drawn up a blueprint for how it would have gone um, to arrive at the point where we have a, a self-identified democratic socialist running for president of the United States, it would have looked quite different from what actually transpired. So um, we would have preferred to 
for example, have an independent mass working class party, we would have preferred for that party to be integrated into the working class and have strong relationships with uh, trade unions, which ideally would have representation in the United States above 10% and not only be strong, but, um, but also you know, militant and left wing um, socialist, ideally. And integrated again with this hypothetical party, we would have preferred for this uh, party to have strong relationships with the movements in the streets, and we would also have preferred for it to have already elected representatives from those movements, uh, all the way, you know, sort of up and down the ballot, culminating in the point when we felt that we had significant power and the ability to um, actually install a left government, right? And that, that would have roots in that sort of pyramid-like structure that I described. That is absolutely not what has transpired in the United States. On the contrary, um, you know, decades of political marginalization uh, yielded sort of the Neo neoliberal ascent, sort of unimpeded, which itself caused you know a massive crisis in 2008, which led to a kind of a politically inchoate uh, restlessness, a sort of appetite for transformation that really could have gone in a number of different directions, and indeed did go in a number of different political directions after 2008. Um, it went into sort of protest movements on the left, starting with Occupy Wall Street, also manifesting in Black Lives Matter. And on the right, crucially, it also found manifestation in the, the right-wing populist formation, the Tea Party, which itself found electoral expression before the left did. Um, so really what we ended up with was a situation where the people were hungry for change. The right wing was getting its act together in being able to capitalize on that. And luckily, we happen to have in the United States a senator, which is sort of a prerequisite. You have to be a senator or a governor, right, to run for, for president. A senator who um, was around back the last time that we had like an organized left in the United States and managed to stay politically consistent, managed to get himself into a position of sort of general credibility to be able to run for president um, and was able to provide leadership for an electoral expression of this sort of um, like not not automatically, as Leo says, um, electoral kind of energy that was swirling around. And once he did, once he started to run for president, I think it surprised him as much as anybody else that he garnered so much support. It seemed like he had thrown his hat in the ring almost as a protest candidacy because it was uh, just a sort of uh, deeply embarrassing to, to watch the, um, the election proceed with Hillary Clinton receiving the sort of um, coronation from the Democratic Party establishment without any sort of challenger, right? Um, and uh, once that happened, it, it was like moths to a flame. You started to see people who would have been in the kind of left party that I was just discussing come out of the woodwork to support the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. And in a way, the 2016 campaign almost functioned like an ad hoc proto party for the left. It gave us the opportunity to meet each other, to build institutions, to develop skills, to hammer out policy ideas, to distinguish ourselves from liberals, to build culture, to build cadre, to do political education, all the kinds of things that you want a mass party to be doing were suddenly actually happening through, on a, on a, not, in, not on a huge scale, but for the first time in a long time through the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. 
once it was over, you know, nobody was surprised that he didn't win in 2016. We were surprised that he got so far. Um, and then we looked around and suddenly we had a something resembling an organized left in the United States, right? Um, and this allowed us in the intervening years to, especially through organs like the Democratic Socialists of America, engage in non-electoral and electoral politics at the same time um, throughout, you know, all throughout the intervening years. Um, and we built up, you know, we built up our organiza organizational infrastructure. We did a lot of political education. We sort of developed cadre. And then we went into 2020 with a deeper bench than we had before. And so, of course, you know, Bernie Sanders didn't win. Um, I, for one, I'm not terribly surprised that he didn't win. If I had to bet, I would have said that he wouldn't have won, right? Precisely because we um, were up against a highly organized opposition without much organization of our own, with nascent organization of our own. Um, but there are, you know, there are some people I think who want to look at Bernie Sanders' loss, as I'm sure there are in the UK with Corbyn and say, aha, the, the experiment in turning from protest to politics has failed. Electoralism is a dead end. We have to go back to where we were before. On the contrary, no. I mean, I think that it's quite obvious that while Bernie Sanders lost, the five-year-long Bernie Sanders experiment did not fail. It actually led to a revitalized and re renewed American or American left, and specifically an institutional American left. Uh, and furthermore, I should say one other thing, which is even for those of us who are not organized on the left, I mean, I am, but for those who aren't, um, the, the Bernie Sanders, I should say, like, it's sort of like one campaign. It's like a five-year-long campaign for the presidency in a way, or a sort of five-year-long experiment, um, has left an indelible impression on the American consciousness. And I would say has left Americans in general with uh, a, a greater sort of imagination for alternatives to capitalism, even people who don't self-identify as socialists, even people who don't tend to, you know, sit around thinking about these things at all, there is just um, a raised, expe raised expectations. The expectations of the American working class have been so rigorously managed for the last several decades, and Bernie Sanders' campaign has busted that wide open. And I think you can, you're going to start seeing, you know, sans Bernie Sanders' leadership itself, you're going to start seeing that manifest on, in general, not just on the left, but in the broader American public. For example, we have this mass protest movement right now. Um, it's more mass in character than the Bernie Sanders campaign was. But you can see already that its demands that it's leveling are much more ambitious and have a much more materialist imagination to them than even the previous Black Lives Matter protests in 2014 and 2015. And certainly, you know, the Rodney King riots in the early 90s, right? Um, so I think that we're going to be reaping the rewards of the Bernie Sanders campaign or campaigns for a long time to come, though obviously it's up to us to take advantage of that. Thanks, Megan. I thought you put that really well. Um, and so my next question, I think, really picks up on that. Um, and this kind of idea of how, you know, these, these the Corbyn and Sanders campaigns both kind of sprung out at a time when really it seemed that working class movements were an all time low. Um, Leo quotes and Andrew Murray as these movements that were kind of class focused, but not class rooted movements. Um, and, and as Megan says, you know, in that context, you know, the most appropriate strategy you would think would be this kind of pyramids type model of kind of like mm -hmm. doing base building first, working level CRPs, union organizing, building together campaigns, running local candidates, and then ending aiming higher. But then, you know, what actually ended up happening 
was the, you know, these huge, bold, powerful national leadership campaigns have galvanized hundreds of thousands of people. But at the same time, we didn't necessarily have that groundwork in place when these campaigns came up. Um, so, in the, you know, in Leo, in your book, you say that this had like, there were lots of advantages to this, but it also left us quite vulnerable. So can you explain a little bit more what you mean by class focused versus class rooted movements? Um, and what are the limits of trying to run socialist campaigns without first having this organized mass base? And what are the other opportunities that it offers? I think, again, it's part of the process of searching for socialism, which is not something that you figure out ahead of time, but it emerges out of the way historical struggles actually happen. Uh, uh, Andrew Murray, who's uh, chief of staff of Unite, uh, Britain's largest union, uh, and the leader of uh, the anti-war campaign, one of the great leaders of the anti-war campaign in Britain, sought the war coalition, etc. He was making that point really about Occupy. It was a piece in Jacobin where he said that. Uh, and, and he was making the point about Occupy that it is, is class focused 99 to 1 and put a class map back on the agenda. Uh, it changed political discourse with that class language. It was a very crude class map, but at least it was a class map again for politics, but it wasn't class rooted. Yet in a certain way, for all of my unhappiness with the anarchist orientation of a lot of Occupy politics, uh, which I didn't think was building a sustainable uh, uh, struggle, uh, one of the great things about Occupy uh, was, in a sense, what is, was that it wasn't class rooted because had it been rooted in a working class which has, had been defeated the way working classes have been defeated everywhere since the 80s, it would have reflected the limitations of that defeat. Uh, the, the fact is that uh, these parallel movements have been going on uh, whereby the institutional structures of the labor movement have continued to atrophy, even while these exciting developments have taken place on the streets and in the parties that originally came uh, to represent those movements. Uh, and what is going to be required, and it couldn't have happened uh, all in one go, is that the energy, the socialist consciousness, the organizing capacities that have been developed amongst the 50, 60,000 people who have joined the DSA or Momentum, or even I would say the 5,000 of those in each organization who are the real activists, uh, they now need to turn towards being a key force in transforming the unions, in reorganizing the working class, doing that either by changing the unions or by creating new ones. And to some extent, this has already happened, uh, especially in the United States with the kind of inspiration that the Sanders campaign gave to furthering what was already going on, but is what much developed after 2016. The teacher struggles, for instance, uh, the changing of the teachers' unions, which is by no means finished, but in some places has gone very far, like Los Angeles and Chicago. Uh, in the UK, uh, it has to be said that 
Corbyn could not have been elected without the emergence of a socialist leadership in the unions, really at the beginning of the 20th century, in response to the disappointments with Blairism. By 2001, 2002, this was happening. These leaders were supporting the Stop the War Coalition. They were supporting the anti-austerity struggles. Uh, they were crucial to getting Corbyn elected, especially McCluskey from Unite. That said, the, they have proved unable to transform their own organizations into dynamic working class organizations. Uh, and, and it's now going to require them being open to the new activists to go into those organizations or to go around them and to become class organizers to learn how to do that, to get support from socialists in the labor movement to do it. That is the next crucial step. Because what you discover as soon as you as a socialist try to work inside a social democratic party like the Labour Party, and heaven knows inside the Democratic Party, is that the first barrier you will encounter to being successful as a socialist is inside those parties. That's where the first line of capitalist defense is, right? In order to be able to overcome that, you need to change the labor movements. Those parties are dependent on working class votes. To a significant extent, they're still dependent on trade union funds and organizers on election day. In order to be able to change those parties, you need to be able to change the labor to reorganize the class. And if that means that those parties break up as a result of successes in doing this, then it's going to require socialists taking the working class organizations with them into new political formations, or at least leaving the representatives of the bourgeoisie inside those parties, which dominate those parties, without a organizational structure rooted in the working class. Thanks, Leo. Uh, Megan, we've got questions coming up which are quite similar to that, but is there anything you'd like to add for now? Yeah, I want to actually sort of explain some stuff that's happening in the United States because I think some of it's quite heartening on this front. I mean, Leo's completely right. And I, I really like this formulation of being class focused but not class rooted. It seems like we've uh, taken care of, you know, number one and now we need to move on to number two. And honestly, it's, it's no small feat to actually to introduce into American politics and British politics sort of a, the, an orientation toward class again. But that is very different from um, an organic uh, mass working class movement that itself is focused on, on class, right? So, um, so in the United States, though, there are some heartening developments, one of which, as Leo mentioned, is the fact that the teachers unions are leading the charge among American labor unions, and specifically that reform caucuses have begun to agitate and in some cases take leadership in American teachers unions and push them to focus on more class-wide demands and sort of have a greater you know, class, class conscious orientation, which is really critical. So um, especially because a teacher, being a teacher is the number one profession in the United States, right? So, so uh, right now something is occurring that I think is, is, is really promising, which is that we have this mass protest movement and we have at least a dozen teachers unions that I am aware of 
which have stepped up in this moment. You know, they're not even they're not even bargaining right now, um, and they've decided to step up and demand police-free schools. They're demanding the, uh, in some cases, the disbanding of school police, which are separate police forces in American cities, specifically for the schools, or they're demanding to, um, you know, defund uh, the police, cut police budgets, and get police out of schools and replace them with non-police alternatives. So the labor movements are actually the labor movement is led by the teachers is starting to orient itself toward the de broader demands of the working class, which is very critical for this process of transformation that Leo is talking about. Um, socialists have not, you know, led every single initiative on this front, but certainly in many of in many of the unions, you will find socialists at the helm of a lot of this transformation. Uh, you will also find, for example, members of uh, specifically members of DSA and some of these unions agitating for precisely this this kind of reorientation. Another um, heartening example that I that I think it's not you know um, we shouldn't blow it up into something that's exemplary of a trend in the labor movement. I think that would be a little bit too rosy, but we should dwell on it as the kind of thing that we might want to replicate. Um, is this uh, emergency workers organizing committee, which is also known as EWOC, which some of you may have heard about, but if you haven't, I will tell you about it. Um, EWOC is a joint project that emerged during the coronavirus, the early sort of the early days of the coronavirus crisis. It's a joint project of the Democratic Socialists of America. America and UE, the United Electrical Workers, which is a very progressive uh, union. And it was actually one of the first unions to endorse Bernie Sanders full-throatedly. I was at a Bernie rally last year where one of the UE local presidents got 13,000 people to chant, strike, strike, strike. So that gives you a sense of what UE is all about. Um, and so UE and DSA have joined forces on this project called EWOC, the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee, the purpose of which is to reach out as broadly as possible and locate workers in essential industries who are currently working during the coronavirus crisis, who do not have union representation, who are ready to organize their workplaces specifically because of coronavirus related issues. And they've managed to get, I believe, 500 volunteers for this and about 1,500 work, uh, workers to reach out to try to organize their workplaces. The incredible thing about this is that it um, a lot of these UE and DSA organizers met each other on the Bernie Sanders campaign. And they also developed skills uh, through the Bernie Sanders campaign, including a model of organizing and dis distributed organizing that they're now employing in this project. So you can see the sort of maturation of the movement and you can see how this elect electoral politics has actually given cadres the skills that they're now transferring over to in what is essentially what this project boils down to is to locate uh, organic workplace leaders and equip them with not just the logistical support, but also the skills and even in some cases, the political education that's necessary to organize their workplaces, thus building a bench in the workplace, building a sort of what we call a militant minority in the workplace and taking advantage of this crisis in order to do that because this crisis is driving people out of the woodwork. Um, it's been pretty successful so far. Uh, many of the campaigns that have been undertaken have actually already won their demands. And in any case, even if the campaigns are not victorious, socialists, unionists, and militant workers are now getting in touch with each other in this crisis, which is exactly what needs to be happening to affect the kinds of changes that Leo is talking about. And we can trace a lot of that back to the Bernie Sanders campaign and the way that it facilitates
facilitated connections between people and gave people skills and confidence too. And uh, lastly, I will say that another heartening development is that in DSA, we have we passed a resolution to orient ourselves toward the labor movement in a particular manner, which uh, is the rank and file strategy. Some of you may have heard of it and some of you may not have, but essentially it's a bit more complicated than this, but to boil it down, it basically says that rank and file power is the source of union power and socialists should be oriented toward making connections with and in the rank and file of workplaces instead of merely sort of acting as um, as uh, you know coalition partners to union leadership. Though of course many union leaders are wonderful, and we must act as coalition partners to them in excellent endeavors. Right. Um, what this has led to actually in DSA is a pretty significant wave. It's at the beginning of the wave, but it's significant in the sense that it hasn't happened in decades, and it's it's definitely happening of young socialist cadres industrializing, which is to say taking jobs in strategic industries with the intention of becoming unionists and transforming those unions to make them more sort of politically suitable entities. Um, and there's a lot of study that's going into this. This is not sort of like half half-assed, like you know, revolutionary uh, adventurism. There's a there's some serious political education that's going into preparing people to actually take lifetime jobs, which they will be good at, ideally, and something that they will actually enjoy because it is for the rest of your life, um, and and thus to sort of root socialists in the working class in a way that was intentionally severed by McCarthyism and the second Red Scare in the United States to sort of repair those broken linkages. So things are happening on this front. They're not happening on a huge scale, but they're happening for the first time in decades. And it's our job to sort of build on and deepen and expand those phenomena and do them at scale, ideally. Thanks, Megan. Those are great um, concrete examples. And I hope maybe we can come back to a, to a couple of them um, as we go on. Uh, before we get to the next question, uh, I am going to take this quick opportunity to plug, uh, as we do every time, the TWT Supporters Network. Um, so we've had 70 supporters join since we started doing these calls, which has been a huge help to us to enable to uh, continue to put them on. Uh, we're now planning, as uh, the world transformed TWT, to considerably scale up our work over the summer. Uh, but to make that happen, we're going to need your help. Uh, the current crisis means we can't guarantee receiving the funding we usually rely on to continue our work. So if you think political education like this is important, um, and if you're in a position to do so, uh, which we, uh, we know many of us are not currently, but if you are, please donate the equivalent of an hour's wage per month at theworldtransform.org slash support. Uh, that's going to show up in the chat uh, in a second, and um, that's it for the advertising break. Thank you so much. <laughs> Okay, um, so let's get back to it. Uh, let's move on to talk about the, mostly the platforms that these campaigns were built around. Built around. So issues like the NHS, Medicaid for all, you know, these were often dismissed as reformist strategies or a distraction from real organizing. Um, even the Green New Deal, when we brought it out, uh, was, was criticized as co-opting the climate movement and watering down its. Um, both of you kind of, in some way supported this strategy of Andre Gortz, this kind of idea of that, you know, socialism isn't about building islands of socialism in a capitalist ocean, but in structural reforms or these kind of non-reformist reforms that, you know, that kind of will build more class antagonisms, like, you know, change the balance of power, uh, build these democratic dynamics. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about this idea of non-reformist reforms with regards to the Sanders and Corbyn 
um, or the movements behind Sanders and Corbyn? Um, what's the potential for this kind of strategy? Where do you see the biggest potential for non-reformist reforms, but also what are the limits for them when you actually enter office? So for example, you know, not everything can be a non-reformist reform. We saw, for example, with Brexit, um, all the kind of toing and froing around in parliament completely demobilized Labour supporters and bogged Corbyn down with kind of like the party and electoral politics. So yeah, talk more about how you see these campaigns in the in the context of non-reformist reforms. Megan. Uh, we'll start with Megan. Sure. Um, well, I mean, essentially, there's a difference that I think is often alighted, and this is a problem of having a sort of uh, a, a de decrepit left <laughs> with a, with a insufficient political education between reforms and reform reformism. Um, accusations of uh, reformism are sort of every, everywhere you turn, and some of them are. Um, are accurate and some of them are inaccurate. But reform, reformism essentially refers to this idea, yeah, sort of like creating creating islands of uh, socialism and a sea of capitalism. Or the way that I sort of tend to think of it is, is this sort of conception that you will stack reforms on top of each other until you get to like a bearable society, right? Um, and then you're done. You're like, we reformed it. Um, so that's not what you know. But obviously, that's not what uh, all reforms are oriented toward. In fact, the struggle for reforms is absolutely critical because otherwise, how would you ever inspire anybody to get off their ass and do anything for their own self-interest? You would only end up inspiring people who were playing out a sort of fantasy scenario of being revolutionaries in their head if you didn't actually attempt to institute reforms that would transform people's lives in a, in a real material way. So um, reforms are critical. Um, obviously, this is uh, knowledge that was, this was not, this is knowledge that was available to revolutionary socialists up to a certain point, and then it seemed to become unavailable to them somehow. But, you know, Rosa Luxemburg obviously would, would say the same thing. And Mark, you know, Marx, um, you know, Marxist organization, the International Working Men's Association, like went all in on the eight hour workday. That is far less than what Marx himself advocated, which is the abolition of wage labor, obviously. But the eight hour workday was supposed to be something that was ambitious enough to inspire people and make them think outside of, you know, the sort of ordinary strictures of what kind of piecemeal piecemeal changes they might expect, but not so ambitious that it would lose credibility. I mean, you could actually win it. You could win it if you fought for it. And the idea was that in the struggle for something like the eight hour day, something that would genuinely transform working people's lives, that people would discover their own capacity. Um, and they would develop their own capacities for um, for further struggle, for for democratic decision making. That they would develop class consciousness. That they would develop skills and relationships with each other and build institutions. And that is precisely what happened in the struggle for the eight-hour day, particularly in uh, the United States, but also elsewhere. Um, it led to a higher degree of class struggle. Right. So this is the kind of approach to reforms that I think is necessary for socialists to uh, affect. And importantly, it's not just about how you go about winning reforms, but it's also about identifying reforms that if one will uh, modify the balance of power between workers and capitalists. So the eight hour day is an example because, um, you know, previously it was just, you know, work, work until you literally can't work anymore. And obviously there's no time for organizing if that's the case. So uh, it was conceived of as, you know, if you were to win at the eight hour day, you would actually um, modify the balance of power somewhat between workers and, and capitalists. Um, but I think an even better example of a non-reformist reform or a structural reform, which is a phrase that Gores also uses, is Medicare for all in the United States, which is the attempt to you know, cover everybody um, with medical insurances provided publicly and publicly financed. And 
obviously this would just help people live better lives. That's why it's inspiring to working class people who are not already radicalized. But additionally, if one, one thing that it can do is make workers less afraid to lose their jobs. Because if, you're, if your insurance is tethered to employment, you become cowed and you become submissive. So the idea is to empower workers through winning this demand. And another thing is to free up unions to negotiate over other things besides benefits, essentially, which is all unions do. And that keeps them kind of servile and keeps them in a kind of um, uh, service, uh, service uh, unionism relationship. They're sort of providing a, a service for a fee to the dues or a sort of fee for service for their members, which is not a radical way to approach unionism, right? So the idea is of Medicare for all is not simply, oh, we'll win Medicare for all because that's the next step. And then we'll win something else because that's the next step beyond that. And we'll stack it all up until one day, look, we've decommodified healthcare. It's actually much deeper than that. The idea is to empower the working class both in the struggle for Medicare for all because it's inspiring and because it would transform people's lives genuinely. And also to once it's one, free up the working class to actually build on the lessons that it learned and the relationships that it built and the skills that it honed in the struggle for Medicare for all to then build on that going forward. So that's the difference between the conception of reformism and the sort of non-reformist reform approach. I'm sure Leo can add to that because I learned a lot of that from Leo. Well, that's nice of you to say, Megan, but I was actually going to quote a marvelous line you have from Rosa Luxemburg in your book with Micah, Bigger Than Bernie, uh, where she's saying to the ultra leftists, um, while uh, the, you can't gradually realize socialism through piling up social reforms, she says between social reforms and revolution, there exists an indissoluble tie. The struggle for reforms is its means. The social revolution is its aim. So then the th key thing is not to, by virtue of the explosion of protests, last year in Extinction Rebellion, especially in the UK, or this year with the Black Lives Matter uh, movements going on around us, to come to the conclusion that we are on the verge of an insurrection. And that anybody who tries to engage in the slow process of party building and class reformation uh, is missing the moment of revolution. This is an illusion. Uh, and it's an illusion that we need to be very, very sensitive to. But at the same time, we need to remain absolutely clear that we want the types of reform we want to advance them ideologically, discursively, and if we can get them done in the state, we want them to be the kind that are open to carrying the class struggle further. The kinds of reforms, as Megan was saying, that give confidence to working class people, rather than give them a partnership with capital and say, you see, it's over. One of the biggest problems with uh, uh, some of Sanders' uh, proposals, and sometimes you found them uh, in, in the Labour Party manifestos as well under Corbyn and McDonald, uh, was that what we want to achieve is workers' representations on corporate boards of directors. Now, insofar as that would give workers some confidence that there are people in the state who want to do things for us, great. But insofar as that's the end of it, well, we know 
that those types of partnerships, workers on boards, usually have workers aligning with their managers in competitive relationships against other corporate corporations and their workers. So we need the type of reforms that are oriented to strengthening the class's capacity to struggle in the broad sense. And insofar as they are those kinds of reforms, they will open the path, they will open the way uh, to changing the state so that it goes on to further reforms, which will take power away from capital and take power away from state bureaucrats. To be quite specific, uh, you know, I think in the current context, while the policy and discursive inroads that the Corbyn and Sanders leaderships have provided are enormous in the context of this coronavirus crisis. How can anyone not say, look how right they were, even to be calling for public ownership of broadband? at a time when school children are dependent on access to uh, a computer in order to continue their education, let alone the obvious obviousness of, of, of public health care. Um, uh, so there's a tremendous opening now by virtue of this coronavirus crisis, but we need to go far beyond this to say, look, we need a public health system not simply universal health care, but the kind of public health system, uh, as a tremendous article by Rollins in Tribune puts it, this in the last issue of Tribune, where we don't have the appalling development of, that we see whereby it is people in nursing homes who are in the majority dying. Why are they in the majority dying? because the type of care they were getting, not health care they were getting, the type of care to live in those nursing homes was so appalling. These privatized or even if they're public underfunded nursing homes where the, the, the frontline staff were so overworked, where the conditions in the nursing homes were so poor and then you get a terrible health crisis which does have medical implications. And of course, that's where the majority of deaths are. So this shows us that the type of reforms we need are the types of reforms which are oriented not only to the provision of public services in medicine, but transforming the whole conception we have of what health is in society to preventative health care which means providing people with the type of conditions that are humane, which uh, a privatized uh, or an underfunded public system cannot possibly do. These need to be the types of reforms which are changing the institutions that are providing public services as well. Uh, they need to be democratized and accountability in them needs not only to be uh, to the rule of law, although that's important to make sure there aren't crooks like the type that's leading the United States at the moment, uh, but, but accountable to the communities which they're serving. Uh, and insofar as the current campaign to change the police system uh, that is taking place in the United States makes a contribution to that, it will be enormous. 
because that is talking about changing the state, changing the state apparatus in a way that it is accountable to the communities it's supposed to be serving. Um, uh, similarly, you mentioned the Green New Deal. Those who argue that it's a co-optation of the radical environmental movement seem to me to be missing the boat. Uh, of course, it's putting forward reforms, but it's actually both of the Green New Deal is advocated by AOC in the United States originally, and the Green New Deal that was at the core of the Labour Party manifesto uh, in December 2019, uh, is actually doing, proposing to do something about it other than complain, uh, other than point to the crisis, which is, of course, a very real one. And the types of reforms they were advancing precisely were impressive because they were about developing state capacities, developing the capacities to do the kind of infrastructure that states currently do not have the capacity to do. Uh, we need to get away from solving the environmental crisis with international meetings and rhetoric about the nature of the crisis to actually redeveloping the capacities of states to be not relying on private construction companies or private uh, uh, automobile firms or private uh, uh, energy firms to provide a solution to this greatest crisis of humanity that will also apply to taking the banks and the tech companies and turning them into public utilities. Just as it's clear, we need to turn the energy companies into public utilities. Uh, these all operate in a synergy together. And I do think that if we conceive of reforms this way, we will in fact be getting to uh, finding an answer to the search for socialism. Okay, so I have, there's been a lot, thank you, that that was, there was lots in there that, that we can pull on. I have one more um, question for myself, but then there's been a lot of chatter um, in the chat about, uh, about UBI, um, both pro and con, and actually I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm certainly curious, and I'm sure a lot of people listening would be curious just to see um, where you would situate that specific reform um, or that specific sort of idea in the context of this sort of, you know, reformist versus non-reformist reforms, and, you know, especially at the way it's being taken up now um, in the context of the coronavirus crisis um, as a way of, uh, of, you know, dealing with sort of mass, mass unemployment um, and, uh, and, you know, sort of people and, and a form of sort of income support that could then be generalized. And uh, Leo, I don't know if you want to tackle that one uh, quickly and then we'll, we'll go on. Uh, well, there's nothing wrong with uh, the state providing uh, uh, benefits to people. And if that's a way of, of uh, doing that, that's fine. The danger is a universal basic income, which has the effect of undermining uh, current social benefits. And that's a danger, uh, which are often targeted in important ways, for instance, to the disabled. Uh, uh, so it, it's a danger. It's also a danger insofar as it individualizes people. Uh, of course, uh, there's a further danger perhaps, and then it's a danger that 
people don't recognize that within the framework of a capitalist labor market, it's not only the limits on how much states can spend that will put a cap on what the basic in income will be defined as, uh, but also the necessity of getting people to work in a capitalist economy. In other words, creating some sort of material incentive of a negative kind is what capitalism needs in order to get people to work. And it's already the case in Canada, I'd be surprised if it isn't uh, in Britain, uh, that the quite handsome uh, uh, emergency benefit of $500 a week, $2,000 a month, uh, which is higher than the wages of many of the frontline workers in the nursing homes uh, were getting uh, uh, before this crisis. But it's already the case that the government is trying to amend the provisions so that people will be forced to go back to work. Uh, because to go back to work on the minimum wage in Canada was actually less than what they're getting in this emergency benefit. And they're trying to find ways of policing people. Uh, so we need to be careful not to be naive about the type of UBI we're likely to get without the kinds of much more radical structural reforms, which will take us out of a dependence on capital accumulation. Uh, which will change people's orientation to work. So they aren't working out of fear of hunger, but working out of a sense of wanting to contribute to society as well as secure their own human dignity. Uh, thank, thanks, Leo. And yeah, it's interesting to, uh, to mention that benefit in, uh, in Canada. I mean, in, in the United States, the um, the addition to uh, to unemployment benefits is also, I think, six hundred dollars a week, on top of the regular uh, UI benefits. Although that, uh, I'm sure, will run out soon. Um, Megan, I want to start with you with this. We'll make this the last question, um, and we'll start with Megan. I want to wrap also as much as as many things that we've seen in the chat and 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 sort of things that are you know bring it, bring things really up to the present uh, with this one. Um, I mean, we've talked about the the reforms and the policy ideas. Uh, behind Corbyn and Sanders, I want to have I want to finish with some of the institutions um, that they're leaving behind. So you know we have momentum uh, in the UK, the Democrat, the DSA um, in the US, which of course predates the Sanders campaign, but has seen a huge explosion um, in membership since that campaign. In a way, is you know a, in a way a totally new organization now uh, than it was pre the pre the Sanders campaign. Um, in some ways, you know, these organizations are very similar. They have this dynamic young base. They've seen explosive growth, uh, very impressive um, ground campaigning um, and uh, attempts to uh, integrate into sort of broader movement politics. Um, at the same time, they face, you know, very different institutional contexts. The Democratic Party is not really a party, a political par party in any recognizable sense, especially recognizable, you know, in most other places in the world. Um, while uh, labor, you know, for all its flaws, is still a mass membership organization. Um, and at the same time, both of these institutions have been criticized for placing too much emphasis on the electoral sphere. Um, I wanted to ask you how, you know, given all of this and given the fact that, again, you know, we're at a point where, where these campaigns have effectively ended the Corbyn Project and the Sanders one. Um, how can these left institutions best take advantage of this political moment that we're in um, right now? What are the challenges and the opportunities they face? Um, and I think I would specifically love to hear 
um, about how they are relating and what the challenges and opportunities are to the mass sort of protests that have broken out in not just in the United States, but I mean, starting in the United States around, around Black Lives Matter, around police brutality and around these, um, and around these demands. Um, so how, how is that sort of newly organized left relating to this political moment? Um, and what are the challenges and opportunities there? Well, it's so, it's so like it's happening right now. So it's so hard to sum up how DSA is relating to the movement. I mean, it's different city by city. A lot of it has to do with how good of a job an individual DSA chapter has done rooting itself in the activist layer of the working class of a given city over the last several years. Um, and so in cities where that's you know been relatively effective, then DSA has been um, successful in being able to like co-lead some of these marches and being able to like craft the demands that are being placed on the state um, and so on. Uh, in cities where it's not been effective, I've noticed that DSA chapters have uh, been somewhat recessive because this is, uh, I mean, it's a black, it's a black led movement and most DSA members are white. And so I think that it occurs to people that they ought to sort of hang back and they also don't have the relationships already to tap into if they didn't want to hang back. So it's very city by city. I would say that just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can't say for certain how true this is because I haven't done like a broad survey. We'll have to see after all this is over, right? But I think that the chapter that probably is doing the best job being integrated, at least of the very large chapters, is probably going to be the Chicago chapter. And that's an interesting case study for a number of reasons. One, the Chicago chapter of DSA has done a very good job um, building rela relationships already with other organizations. It hasn't been kind of a uh, um, sectarian or or uh, self-important. It's uh, it's it's built relationships over many years, um, and those are the, it's tapping into those now. It's built up goodwill also to be able to like co-lead marches with organizations that have a much higher percentage of people of color members. So that's really important. And another thing about the Chicago chapter that I think is instructive is that in Chicago they elected six. DSA members to their city council, which means that 12% of the Chicago city council is DSA members. And so A, that helped them uh, build relationships with um, the other groups that were backing those campaigns, which they're tapping into now, which is good. And B, uh, those, um, those uh, representatives themselves have been using their office as a sort of tribune for um, the sort of DS, the ideal DSA version of the uh, demands. So it's uh, they're pushing these, the six Chicago socialists are pushing the demand to defund the police and invest in social services that should have been there all along and including a kind of socialist analysis as they push that demand while also foregrounding racism and racist police brutality in Chicago. Uh, they published an op-ed together that was on the front page of the Chicago Sun-Times. And I even noticed that when the Chicago Teachers Union used the demand hashtag defund the police on Twitter, they were they were adding, they were tagging Chicago DSA, and that also the political opponents of the demand to defund the police were attributing it to DSA. So there was a kind of, there's a kind of ownership over the defund the police demand, not, a, not an exclusive ownership, but I think a pretty impressive uh, ownership over um, over that demand that Chicago has been able to affect. Now that said, that's not happening everywhere. There are plenty of, there are chapters where I worry that DSA has been um, uh, far too recessive and uh, unable to actually find a, a foothold in the protests. 
that are happening. Some of that has to do with the fact that maybe the protests that are happening in those cities are not super highly organized to begin with. So it's hard to know how you would find a foothold. Some of it has to do with having bad blood with other organizations or just not having goodwill with other organizations and so on. So it's a challenge and it's very interesting to see how it's playing out. Um, but I um, I have, this is to follow up on something I mentioned previously, you know, that one of DSA's projects is EWOC, the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee. Well, you know, they've meant initially to respond to um, workers who are developing a kind of organic militancy and desire to organize their coworkers because uh, they've faces, faced problems at work due to the pandemic. Well, I, they've, they've switched gears now and then they're continuing to do that, but they're also including workers who are experiencing retaliation for protest related activities at work because a lot of workers like at Starbucks if you for a while they said if you wore a black lives matter shirt you had to take it off things like that so so again sort of ewok is becoming adaptable and trying to figure out how to incorporate this uh, respond to the needs of this moment and this movement um, so it's a mixed bag and I think that some DSA chapters are doing great jobs, some DSA chapters are struggling, and we'll have to see. I will say, though, that you asked to answer the second part of your question, which is how should we take advantage of this moment more generally? Um, I think that obviously the uh, DSA has to become, has to be extremely flexible and adaptable, adaptable and figure out how to slot itself into this particular uh, protest movement, but that also it needs to continue strategizing going forward beyond and incorporating and responding to the protest movement, for example, in its electoral work. So DSA needs to continue um, running candidates. And I think specifically that DSA needs to be running our own candidates. And what I mean by that is people who come from DSA. So for as DSA was getting on its feet, um, there was a tendency to a DSA candidate was often someone who was like a progressive who was already running, who had a lot of overlap with DSA and maybe maybe felt comfortable calling themselves a socialist who would get a sort of seal of approval from the organization. The problem with that, not that we shouldn't do that, but the problem with relying on that is that when right now we have no means of disciplining candidates because we're not powerful enough to make them think about us when they're inside the halls of power facing all kinds of pressures. There are two different kinds of pressures that they can face, both of which are conservatizing. One, they can have an arm twisted. Two, as uh, Leo put it in an interview that I listened to recently, they might actually come to discover that their colleagues don't eat babies, as you said. And this actually can be its own kind of pressure, you know, to want to sort of uh, make nice with people that you work with. So because of that, and because we're not strong yet, not strong enough yet to simply discipline them through our sheer force, through the fear that if they if they uh, cross us, then they won't have our support, which is absolutely critical for anyone to have, right? Since we're not there yet, we do need to have true believers in there. We need to have people who are going to be able to have a political compass of their own and have relationships with people in DSA that they personally would feel heartbroken if they had known that they had uh, that they had let down their comrades. I mean, it's actually very, very important. And I've been watching this play out in the United States and the politicians who I am, the representatives who I'm most proud of, most proud to see representing DSA are people who I know for a fact, uh, you know, 
kept the calendar of their old DSA chapter before they were cajoled into running for office, right? Not just somebody who drifts through and they're already running and we give them a stamp of approval. Those people are not ours and we can't keep them close to us. So we need to be running, we need to be, we basically we need to be, uh, we need to be sending cadre up and we need to be running them for office. Of course, this poses a problem, which is that we need those people for other things too. <laughs> we can't do it with everybody. And Leo's written about this extensively, um, is that you have to find out the right, you have to figure out the right balance. I mean, in Oakland, where I was living before, we talked about running someone for city council and one of the, um, we, we ended up not doing it and I won't go into it, but one of the things that was enticing was that the person could take five staff members with them. Well, that's five DSA members employed by the city of Oakland. How, how much better can it get? We're getting paid to be tribunes of socialism in the city of Oakland. And then we started thinking, can we spare five can we spare our five best people right now? Um, it's that, that, I mean, it's not, we have a pretty big group I and mean, there's thousands of members, but the activist core, I mean, people are busy. People are busy doing good stuff. And if you take them, if you reassign them, you might end up with some problems of getting siloed off into the electoral sphere. So these are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about as we prepare to continue engaging in um, what we call class struggle elections, uh, specifically elections geared toward heightening the level of class struggle and uh, uh, waging class conflict through electoral politics. And additionally, I think that we need to focus on the movements and I think we specifically need to focus on making inroads into the labor movement, but I won't recapitulate that because we kind of touched on it already. But thank you all. Thanks, Megan. That went you know, from, from one end uh, to the other, what we need to do. We'll give Leo the, the last word and I know there were things in there that I'm sure he'll, um, grab onto. Well, well, the first thing I want to say is that the world transformed is a spin-off of momentum. Uh, the type of uh, uh, breakthrough that was made in terms of socialist discussions, strategy, debates, uh, and political education, which first occurred at Labour Party conferences, uh, uh, when the world transformed emerged. Uh, uh, you know, it, it changed Labour Party conferences from being a trade fair uh, where, you know, firms would bring their goods in the hope that a Labour government would give them business. Uh, uh, you know, the world transformed became an arena of uh, cultural exchange and political education at party conferences. Well, what you're doing uh, with this type of uh, webinar and you were already doing beforehand was taking that out of the annual Labour Party conference alone and trying to do that uh, in a general way in many communities across Britain uh, through the course of the year. Um, insofar as that type of this type of political education can continue uh, to be developed by the DSA and by Momentum, and Momentum was largely not engaged in political education. One needs to recognize that outside of its terrific campaign videos, which were educational in themselves, it wasn't engaged in political education. So uh, one needs to carry forward what the TWT has done, I think, uh, in a really serious way. What I'd say, however, is that that needs to be done not only vis-a-vis uh, -vis the membership of the Labour Party or activists in the communities. It needs to be done vis-a-vis -vis 
the people who are uh, in parliament or have ambitions to enter parliament, because as Megan was suggesting, uh, there's no sense them becoming such unless they themselves are relatively developed socialists, unless they themselves have a class map, unless they themselves are oriented to taking what they learn uh, inside the state, the contradictions, the difficulties, the opportunities, and take that back to the people who got them there. Uh, you know, if the Blairites and the Clintonites were much more oriented to the political education of, con of Congress people and members of the Parliamentary Labour Party than the left has been. Uh, we need to take responsibility for turning the candidates into socialists and making them accountable socialists. This is absolutely a crucial task. That also applies to the discussion we were having, for instance, about, about universal basic income. And I saw a lot of chattering about that uh, of a good kind. Uh, said, look, UBI is not intended to get people back to work. Well, the point is to have the type of political discussion about it that doesn't deny that, but that says, look, why is a capitalist state likely to adopt this? In what way is it likely to adopt? is going to adopt it in a way that doesn't undermine the capitalist labor market. So a UBI can be advanced, but it needs to be advanced in a way that lessens the chains of the capitalist labor market, that takes the dependence of the state on capital accumulation of multinational corporations uh, away. So it becomes part of a socialist strategy, a structural reform. It's not a matter of saying people who perform, put forward UBI don't want it to be something much bigger than it can be with the existing state, but it's the type of political education that's needed, both of MPs or of congressmen um, and of members, so that they have a more sophisticated understanding of the, of the strategic orientations that are required. Uh, look, momentum is going through this right at the moment. What will momentum be is to some extent going to be decided by the elections for uh, the management committee that is going on right now. Um, and it seems to me that all of the demands that are being put forward for how to change it by the various sides and various slates in that campaign are basically right. They're basically oriented to turning momentum into a uh, uh, mobilizing and socializing and campaigning an educational organization rather than uh, being a uh, support network for socialist MPs alone. And that's very impressive. And they want to be not so oriented to a struggle inside the party alone, but be oriented to changing the base of the party so it can become a center of working class life again. I think everybody wants that, but there is a lot of factionalism of a kind that I think is very worrying um, in the current campaign going on for what momentum will be. And I think people need to recognize that their main enemies are not in momentum. Their main adversaries are not in momentum. Uh, if we're going to go forward, uh, the 
differences that exist in the DSA uh, and, and Memento uh, need to be treated in a, a comradely socialist way. Um, I would hope under the kind of creative leadership that Megan is giving to the DSA or you guys are giving through the TWT. Um, but really a lot hangs right now on whether momentum in the DSA with their 50, 60,000 members can continue to be major socialist forces in Britain and the United States. And other countries will take a lot of lessons from this. Really a lot depends on this. And people need to walk very gingerly while being very ambitious. These are the largest political organizations of the socialist left in a very, very, very long time. Let's not blow it. Thanks, Leo. And thanks, Megan. I think that's a really good note to finish it on. Just kind of, I really like this idea about talking don't, about- Don't blow it. Don't, don't blow it. <laughs> um, I like the idea of this kind of, you know, building the link between movements and elected officials, but also like building forms of democratic accountability between the two of them. And also that, you know, we're in really dangerous times right now. Um, and the way we tread from now on will really define like whether we're able to move forward going on. Um, okay, so on that note, I'm just gonna, we're, we're nearly at the end of the call. Um, so TWT are trying to organize as many online spaces as possible for people to interact. We've created a step-by-step -step guide for supporting people to run political education and organizing meetings online. We'll post a link in the chat now. Um, so keep an eye out for all the groups and other kinds of political education we're doing, organizing meetings, and of course, tune into the call, the same call in two weeks. Um, and of course, once again, um, if you are able to join the TWT Supporters Network, uh, as Leo said, as uh, Megan has also said, political education on the left is more important than ever uh, for ourselves, uh, for people who want to enter the state, enter movements, enter trade unions, um, to rebuild really working class institutions. Um, this crisis poses a real risk to organizations like us uh, who are small and trying to do this work right now. Uh, please go to theworldtransform.org support if you can um, and if you haven't already. Um, and we will be back in a couple weeks uh, with Leo. Our guests will be Sam Gindin and Christine Berry. We'll be talking about the coronavirus crisis um, and we look forward to seeing all of you and more then. Thanks again a lot. Good night.